Hey Conjures, I'm Steph. And I'm Sham. Sometimes the kindest, happiest people are actually hiding a darkness no one could imagine about them. Can anyone snap if pushed far enough? In this case, we may never learn the true motives behind a double murder and suicide that shocked an entire community. Deborah Ryman was born on January 4, 1965, in the small village of Sydney, New York, to William and Sandra. Deborah was one of four siblings with one brother and two sisters. She and her siblings grew up in nearby Walton, New York, and she graduated from high school there in 1984. From an early age, she enjoyed baking and gardening. Deborah met Randy Sundstrom in 1992 when she was 27 and he was 29. Randy was from Roscoe, about 30 miles away from Walton. Randy was one of three children to farmers Charles and Florence Sundstrom. He joined the Army in 1981 after high school and served only two years. In 1989, Randy's girlfriend at the time gave birth to his daughter Melinda, but when she was a toddler, around the same time he met Deborah, Randy walked out and was never a part of his daughter's life again. He moved the 30 minutes away to Walton to be with Deborah and sent a few birthday cards and a gift card when she graduated from high school, but that was basically it. Melinda always assumed it was Deborah that kept her dad away from her, out of jealousy. Deborah worked for years with the Delaware County Social Welfare Agency, helping people with disabilities. Randy, for many years, worked in a warehouse for Drogan Home Furnishings, then later worked at Scott Machine Corp, an engraving firm in Walton. The couple's true love, though, was growing giant pumpkins. In the late 1990s, the two of them began growing giant pumpkins, and that became a social focal point of their life. Randy was the founding president of the New York State Giant Pumpkin Growers Association, and Deborah was alongside him as an active member. The couple even appeared in a 2007 documentary called Lords of the Gourd, which followed pumpkin growers preparing for the New York State Fair. In 2008, they grew a pumpkin that weighed nearly 1,500 pounds, setting a record for pumpkins in New York State. Deborah was described as always happy and smiling, and Randy was a really great guy willing to give you the shirt off his back. Their friends kind of laughed about how Randy and Deborah didn't hang out at bars and they didn't go to church, they gardened. They tended their pumpkins, watermelons, dozens of tomato plants and other vegetables, as well as blueberries and grapes. That was their religion. They seemed perfect for each other. They were both do-it-yourself homebody types. They really enjoyed doing everything together, growing together, canning together, cooking together, walking their beloved Australian shepherd shadow together. Sounds like me and my husband. We're 100% homebody types. However, he does all the gardening and I just eat what he gardens. <laughs> they seem very much at home with each other. I love giant pumpkins every fall, but I never really thought about what must go into growing something like that. That's so impressive. It is really impressive. <laughs> I don't see anything wrong with them so far. Neither did anyone else. That's why everyone was shocked when in February of 2010, after 20 years together, 47-year-old Randy disappeared with no warning. 
Deborah was heartbroken and shared with everyone that Randy had confessed that he had a secret girlfriend who turned up pregnant and he ran off to start a new life with her. To make matters worse, Deborah lost her job around the same time and had to take a job as a cashier at the Big M to make it, especially now that she was on her own. Deborah confided in her close friends that Randy abused her. She told a story of waking up one night to him holding a gun over her for no reason. A neighbor corroborated her allegations of abuse. He remembered Deborah running to his house in the middle of the night one night, all beat up. They called police, but she refused to press charges. Their friends were shocked to learn this about Randy. They had never even suspected he might be abusive. They tried to comfort Deborah with words of support, telling her good riddance to Randy leaving. After all, he did leave his last girlfriend and child for Deborah. Is it really that surprising that he might do it again? Okay, if he was indeed an abuser, she was better off alone. And so is anyone in that situation, even if you have to struggle for a while. I will say, though, that police have no record of any calls about domestic violence regarding Deborah and Randy. That doesn't mean it's not true. But aside from that one neighbor's story, there was never any other sign of abuse. It's very weird that no one suspected it. Usually there's a small hint, even if it's as simple as they argued a lot or he seemed controlling or even kept her away from her loved ones, but that doesn't seem like the case. No, if anything, Deborah was the one people thought of as a little controlling of Randy. She stayed close with her friends, but she began to distance herself from Randy's friends. When his best friend tried to reach out, she changed her number. Deborah took her new cashier job with a positive attitude. She quickly became a customer favorite and was like an aunt to all the kids in the community. Her boss said she was a hard worker and always had a smile for her customer no matter how hard her day had been. About two years after Randy left, Deborah's friends thought she needed some love in her life. Her friends Bill and Tina set her up with Bill's cousin Nick Bosco. He was a big, rugged-looking man from Long Island who worked for a tree-trimming service. He came from a prominent family in Walton, and he spent a lot of time at the family cabin in 200 acres out near Bear Spring Mountain. He was really into nature and dreamed of retiring and settling down in Walton. Bill and Tina set up a double date, and Nick loved to cook, so he prepared dinner. Nick and Deborah hit it off right away. Everything seemed to be going great for Deborah. That is until January 28, 2013, when while at Big M, a customer paid for his groceries and left his wallet on the counter. He noticed he didn't have his wallet as soon as he got outside, so he went right back in to look for it. When he went back to the register and asked the cashier about the wallet, Deborah denied that she had seen it, but he knew she was lying. After arguing with her for a while, the manager got involved and defended Deborah. The man stormed out and went straight to the police station and reported the situation. Girl, now listen. If he left it on the counter and didn't come back until days later, I could see how you might be able to get away with that. But it was all of seconds, and the only place he could have left it was the counter. She easily could have just given it back to him and made an excuse about how she took it to put it in Lost and Found or something. Why did she fight so hard? It was obvious she took it. <laughs> he literally went from the counter to his car with no stops in between. <laughs> right. <laughs> Police went back to the store with the angry customer and asked to see the security footage. Right there on the camera, they could clearly see the man leaving the wallet on the counter at Deborah's register. Then when he walks away, she takes the wallet and places it in her personal drawer at her station. They asked her to come down to the station, but she refused to go. 
They confronted her with the security footage, and she finally admitted to taking the wallet, but still refused to go with the officers peacefully. This was a small town of less than 5,000 people. Everyone knows everyone in a town like this. These officers knew Deborah personally. They didn't know what was going on with her, but they knew this wasn't typical. They charged her with grand larceny, but decided to let her go home with the promise she would appear in court the following week. Deborah's manager was shocked. Not only that she did take the wallet, but that she now refused to cooperate with the police. She was fired on the spot, of course. Her behavior is very weird and awfully entitled. There were security cameras. There was no way she was getting away with that. She is acting entitled, and the police enabled that behavior by not arresting her. It's ridiculous. Yeah, something isn't right about her, and now we know she's capable of lying. Absolutely. Next, Sham will tell us how this case went from mundane to insane in a matter of minutes. Deborah's court date came and went, and she never showed. A bench warrant was put out for her arrest, but no one had seen Deborah around for a while. They tried her house multiple times, but it was clear she hadn't been home in the last few days. Police got word that she might be staying at her boyfriend's cabin. On the afternoon of February 19th of 2013, police went to the Bosco family cabin to serve Deborah with a bench warrant. When they knocked, Deborah casually opened the door, still wearing her nightgown. They explained the situation and told her that she had to come with them this time. She apologized for missing her court date and agreed to go with them, but asked for a few minutes to get dressed. They agreed and she closed the door while they waited outside on the front porch. A few minutes after she closed the door, the officers heard two gunshots. They tried the handle, but she had locked the door. They broke the door down and one officer made their way through the first floor while the other ran upstairs. Upstairs, they found Deborah and her beloved dog, Shadow, each shot in the head once by a rifle lying next to Deborah. The police officer downstairs started yelling that the cabin was on fire. They barely escaped before the house burst into flames and they watched helplessly as all the evidence of whatever had happened was destroyed. Why did she have to shoot the dog? I mean, I guess if you already set the house on fire, it's more humane than making it burn alive, but still, just let it outside so it can live. Don't shoot it. The dog would have at least had a chance to get out of the house before it burned down. And yes, it would have been more humane to put the dog outside of the cabin. Where was her boyfriend during all of this? Well, while waiting for firefighters to put out the fire, police started looking for Nick. They quickly realized after making a few calls that none of his friends had heard from him in a few days. His cousin Bill learned from police about Deborah's arrest and found out that she had stolen a wallet, and that was the real reason she lost her job. Because up until this point, Deborah had told everyone that she had been training two other associates and one of them had gotten nasty with a customer. She claimed the manager fired Deborah and the two associates to make an example of them. She hadn't told anyone about the wallet incident at all. Back at the cabin, the fire had destroyed the entire house. Only the detached garage had been saved from the flames. They brought the cadaver dogs in as an effort to locate Deborah's body in the ashes. The dogs did find her body in a place consistent with where the officers had originally seen her body. They were able to determine that in minutes after closing the door, Deborah started the fire, then went upstairs, shot her dog, then herself. Surprisingly, the cadaver dogs also hit on a second set of remains in the basement. That body was burnt beyond recognition, but police had their suspicions. Okay, she's got a lot darker stuff going on than anybody thought. She didn't think anyone would find out about her lies. I mean, if she was planning on committing suicide, who cares if they find out, you know? Do you think she planned the suicide or decided at the last minute because the police were at her door? Oh, it had to be planned. 
She likely was just planning to do it whenever the cops showed up, but not specifically that day. All right, go ahead. Who was the body? Dental records confirmed the remains belonged to 51-year-old Nick Bosco. What police hadn't expected was the medical examiner was able to determine that Nick had been killed approximately three days prior to the fire. The official cause of death couldn't be determined, but his body was found at what would have been the bottom of the basement stairs. The condition of his body indicated he was likely killed in the main part of the house and pushed down the stairs after death. Police wondered if Deborah had even known Nick's body was in the house with her when she committed suicide and set the place on fire. They couldn't imagine Deborah doing this. The charges Deborah was facing for theft were minor. She couldn't have been driven to these extremes by that alone. They speculated that maybe Randy had come back and killed Nick in a fit of jealousy that Deborah had been dating someone else. Maybe that trauma could have pushed Deborah over the edge enough to prompt her to commit suicide. Damn, they really insist on giving her the benefit of the doubt no matter what. They are still assuming she could never hurt anyone. She killed a dog. She could kill anyone. (laughs) Clearly, this isn't a woman who needs protecting. She must have really had them fooled. What else did they find? Next, they searched for answers at what was once Deborah and Randy's house on the other side of town. They found what looked like red paint haphazardly splattered on one wall. Through luminal tests, they discovered it was actually old dried blood. They brought the cadaver dogs out and they immediately alerted them to a 55-gallon barrel outside around the back of the house. Inside, they found human remains stuffed awkwardly into the barrel, severely decomposed. Through dental records, they confirmed the body was Randy. Randy had been dead since February of 2010 and no one had reported him missing. His parents were dead and he wasn't in contact with his siblings or daughter. His friends never doubted Deborah's story about Randy's abandonment. After three years in that barrel, they weren't able to determine the cause of death. Police's new theory was that Deborah killed Randy in 2010, possibly in retaliation for the alleged abuse. They wondered if she killed Nick because he had found out about the wallet theft, or maybe it was because he found out the truth about Randy. Oh my god, she's practically a serial killer. No one ever wondered why Randy never contacted his own friends? And in retaliation to abuse, she has lied so much. How do we even know the domestic violence was real? I agree. I believe we should always trust the victim when they say that they have been abused. But in this case, she is clearly an experienced liar. And Randy is dead. Why did she kill both of them? Is she just a black widow or something? (laughs) While Nick and Randy's case have been declared homicides and Deborah is the only suspect, her motive for either murder has never been uncovered. And it's never too late. This is a long shot, but anyone with information about Randy's activities during 2009 and 2010 may contact the New York State Police at 607-561-7400. The funeral arrangements for Randy fell on his estranged daughter, Melinda. She would have had every right to say it's not her problem. She didn't even know what he looked like. But she did the generous thing. She organized a proper funeral for the stranger who was her father, including a military burial at Sullivan County Veterans Cemetery. She said she appreciated that several pumpkin growers attended the funeral. I can't say I'd be as kind as his daughter. He abandoned her literally right down the road and ignored her her entire life. She's a bigger person than I am. She may feel obligated only because if not her, then who? Either way, it was kind of her to do, and I'd probably do it too if I didn't have to pay for it. That's the thing. I think she did pay for it. So what about Nick? Nick's family was devastated by what was done to him. He was a sweet, honest, and hardworking man who was crazy about Deborah. 
They don't believe she could have overpowered him in a fair fight and wonder if she snuck up from behind him or maybe even poisoned him. Nick's ashes were spread by his family on the property where the cabin once stood, among the nature he always loved. Deborah's motive for killing the two men she supposedly loved may never be explained. Was she an abused woman that snapped? Was she a liar willing to do whatever it takes to keep her secrets? Or was there possibly something darker lurking behind that sweet, smiling face that no one could have seen coming? The only lesson we can possibly learn from this is to look closer at our friends. There might just be more than meets the eye. The National Center on Domestic Violence, Trauma, and Mental Health provides training, support, and consultation to advocates, mental health, and substance abuse providers, legal professionals, and policymakers as they work to improve agency and system-level responses to survivors and their children. Their work is survivor-defined and rooted in principles of social justice. If you're a victim of domestic violence or know someone who is, go to www.nationalcenterdvtraumamh.org or call 312-726-7020 for more information. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Production with music by Jordan Elena. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for our question of the week. You can also find us on TikTok. Steph, what's our Conjure Tip of the Week? Let's talk about pumpkins. Early summer is actually the perfect time to plant pumpkins in your garden. By fall, you can harvest the pumpkins, and aside from all the normal uses for pumpkins, there are also plenty of magical uses. The pumpkin is connected to the water element and the moon. It has a number of magical properties, including prosperity, growth, fertility, creativity, vitality, divination, and all things harvest-related. A pumpkin or something made from it can be a powerful offering. If you can plant pumpkins now, you'll have food, decorations, and a powerful magical tool right in your garden come fall. Not to mention, watching a plant go from seed to seedling to full-grown is magic of its own. My husband actually planted pumpkins recently, and we also did the year before. I love having a little mini pumpkin patch in our backyard, and I highly recommend it. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time, stay vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.